You are listening to Agent Court Church's audio podcast. For more information on Agent Court Church, including service times, how to connect, and campus locations, please visit our website at onechurch.to. Terrell Thomas from Rizzo River Anishinaabe First Nation, Manitoba, is a talented Indigenous hip-hop artist and speaker with a powerful story of hope and change. For the past two years, he has been traveling full-time across Canada with Live Different, sharing his life-changing message and music with thousands of youth in schools and Indigenous communities. Over that period, Terrell has performed over 240 shows. Please welcome Terrell Thomas. Miigwech, thank you. All right, I got a question. How many of you guys want to hear a funny story? Put up your hands. Put up your hands. Yeah, shout out to that person right there. First hand up. I see you. All right, so in 2014, I was touring the country, and I went back to my home reserve, which is just outside of Winnipeg. And I remember I was doing this concert. I was on the last song of the night. It was, it was one of those songs where it's kind of chill, but by the end of the song, I got everybody jumping. So I do this countdown. I'm like, three, two, one, jump. And everybody in the crowd is going as hard as they can, man. It gets crazy up in the shows. So then I'm thinking, if these people are jumping for me, I should probably jump for them too. See, here I am on stage, and I'm going as hard as I can trying to reach the roof. But on a third or fourth jump, on my way down, my pants fell off. That was so embarrassing, man. I was like, what? I went to the side of the stage, put my belt back on, and I came back to the stage. You know, I finished the song. I did my best to stay positive. But I also believe that sometimes it's hard to stay positive. You see, growing up was hard for me. My dad wasn't in my life. He, he was an alcoholic. And my mom, she left me on my grandma's couch when I was two weeks old. And I must have been laying on this couch for about two or three hours before anybody found me. And when they did, they read this note. And it said that she couldn't take care of me and that she was leaving. You see, even in my own family, I felt like I never fit in, like I didn't belong. I remember I was eight years old, and, and I was playing with my toys in my room, and my grandma knocks on the door. She opens it, and she's like, Tyrell, your dad's here. And I'm thinking, my dad is here? Wait, my dad is here? Yes, my dad is here. We'll be a family again, and we'll be happy. You know, I was so excited to meet him, and she takes me down the hallway to the back door. And she opens it. And there he is, my dad. You know, he didn't even say hi to me. He said, where's your mom? So I took him to where my mom was, and she was at this trailer, my auntie's trailer, playing cards. And we're walking up the steps into, to go inside, and he tells me to wait. So I'm waiting, and a couple minutes goes by. You start hearing this arguing. You know, it's getting louder and louder, and, and you knew that my dad was mad because of his footsteps. He came to the door, and he, he kicked it open. And he walked past me like I didn't exist. But this is my dad, and some part of me loved him, so I followed him. And he's on his road, and he notices me. And he said, Tyrell, you can't come where I'm going. He would turn and walk. He said the same thing to me. But this time we got to the end of the road. He looked at his eight-year-old son. And he said, Tyrell, I'm never coming back. 
said this to me when I was eight years old. I remember I was hurting so much that I didn't know what to do. I watched him walk away until I couldn't see him anymore. I went to my grandma's house, and I remember my whole family was home, but I was crying so loud, and not one person came to see if I was okay. I felt like I didn't belong, like I didn't matter. So knowing that I wasn't going to find love at home, I started looking for love in other places. I started trying to be a gang member. I even got into a life of crime where I, ha I robbed this guy years later. His name was Kurt. He had this three-story house, and he had this gray van. He had a beautiful family. But I knew he was rich, so, so I had this plan to rob him. So I had my cousins help me out. I had one at the four-way stop sign, another one in front of his house. So if they seen their van coming, they'd whistle to warn me. And as they're doing that, I'm at the back door, and, and I finally get through. And I search through most of the house, and I get to the master bedroom. And there's this dresser. Go from the bottom drawer to the top, and I, and I open it. And there's these cards. So I cut them open, and they're Christmas cards that they got from their family and friends over the years. But inside them were $50 bills and, and $100 bills. So it didn't matter to me. I took it all, and you know I got my guys together. We left out the back door at the backyard, but one of the neighbors saw us. And later that night, we, we ended up at a place called the Sunflower Festival, where there was rides, food, a place we could spend the money that we just stole. But 11 o'clock comes around and all these shops are closing. Me and my cousin are walking home, you know, laughing and joking. We both look up at the same time. And down the sidewalk is Kurt. And he's walking towards us. And he comes up to me. He's like, can I talk to you? I said, yeah. And he asked me, do you know who broke into my house? And I said, no. He stopped and he took a deep breath and he, and he looked on the ground, knelt back at me. He asked me again, do you know who broke into my house? And I said, no. But the second time I said no, I felt so hurt and my, my I felt sick because I lied to another man. He said, if you hear anything but tomorrow at lunchtime, let me know. If not, I'm calling the cops and they'll find out who did it. He got up and he walked away. After this, I went to my grandma's house and I remember I was thinking so much. But you know, the number one thought that hurt me most was tomorrow, I'm going to jail. Tomorrow, I'm going to jail. Who's going to be there for my brother and sister that I had to help raise because my parents weren't there? You know, I didn't sleep at all. I was thinking so much, but I finally worked up enough courage and to be brave. I called him the next morning at 11 a.m. I put in his number, and it rings, and he picks up. And I said, Kurt, I'm sorry I broke into your house. It won't happen again. And I'm ready to go to jail. I said that to him. He said, I'm not going to call the cops on you. I want you to pay me back and help my family build a shed. You know, right away I said yes, and we both said goodbye and hung up the phone. And the next day I was walking to his house, and I was scared because I thought that I was going to get beat up or yelled at. But when I got there, Kurt is right beside me. His kids are in the sandbox, and his wife is in the garden. 
The man that I just robbed is right beside me. He's asking me things I've never heard before. What do you want to do when you graduate? What do you want to be when you grow up? He looked past the boy who robbed him to see who I could be one day. He showed me love and forgiveness. It changed my life. It brought me to a place where I want people all over this country to know that there's purpose and struggle. You're not alone and you're loved. I wrote a song about my mom and dad rather than being bitter and hateful towards them. I chose to understand, to love and forgive. So can I do that song for you guys? Thank you. Here I am again, another hopeless sleepless night Thinking will I actually be alright? Cause I might be bringing up the past It's only cause they hit the wall crash Completely fake it to be fine I tell I thought of the aftermath Dear dad, did you mean it when you said that you loved me? And then he said, trust me How am I supposed to trust someone when they thought it was us? You drank your life away and said you could've took care of us I had to lie to my brother and sister every time they asked for you, dad Do you think I appreciate telling them that you didn't have a plan to come see us? You didn't make an effort and you're probably the best pretender That made me mad when you walked away and told me you were never coming back and I had a heart attack Fighting for most of my life to get your attention How am I supposed to be a man when I was never taught a lesson? And I keep asking what I do to make you see me like this And, and I deserve it Seeker of your love Seeker and of attention us. But I'm seeing past the seeing pain, past the pain. It's easy to leave and even harder on the person you left It's like I can't breathe, the past took my breath Mom, I don't know what you were thinking when you left a note on my stomach So sudden you went cold-blooded I was only two weeks old when you left me in that couch Just a baby alone with no one else in that house When grandma told me the story, I was hurt beyond belief I always ask myself this question, should I leave? I mean, I guess I wasn't meant to live Never even had a voice, never had nothing to give I didn't have a choice, but years blah by I grew up mom, but you doubted me from birth, but this survivor proved you wrong. Tears falling rapidly, flowing like rapids, writing in my notebooks, and I seriously can't stand this. Mom, you could have shown love and home. I don't even know you to this day, it's sad to say I don't. And I keep asking what I do to make you see me like this. And undeserving, seeker of your love and attention. But I'm seeing past the pain. As I write this, I'm flipping the pages and moving on, starting on a new page. Inspired through songs, this is dedicated to the hurt, broken and more. Just remember that you're stronger than before the war. The battle through this life isn't always easy to survive, but the victory or the reason, the reason we're still alive. I look in the mirror, I see you, mom and dad. I'm not a kid no more. Finally alone, I can stand. I'm a perfect example of nothing rising from the dirt with roots, spreading all across the globe, helping heal her. With that being said, I got morals to follow while I live And a call to make a difference, including to forgive So, mom and dad, I'm glad we met when I was older You smile every time because you see me getting bolder I forgive you both, love has been restored I love you to the fullest, I love you forevermore And I keep asking 
to my mom and dad, I still love you. And I always will. I forgive you. Thank you. Trisha North is an up-and-coming young Indigenous leader. She is from Winnipeg in the Bunabonbi Cree Nation in Manitoba. Daughter of Sheila North, the former Grand Chief of Northern Manitoba, Trisha has worked as a DJ at Streets 104.7 FM and also is a hip-hop artist known as Sadie. Most recently, Trisha serves as the Indigenous Road Team Leader at Live Different, where she applies her passion for inspiring youth and helped to launch and lead Live Different's highly regarded Indigenous Youth Empowerment Program. Please welcome Trisha North. It's great to have Live Different with us, uh, Ryan Wood right in the front row, the director of this organization, and Trisha and Terrell, and they tour in many of the reserves in Canada bringing hope. And we'll hear from Terrell a little bit li later, and it was interesting last night when we had a chance to connect, that gentleman that showed him grace was uh, part of his story of coming to Jesus. Uh, as he had received forgiveness, he gave forgiveness to Terrell, and Terrell received God's grace. Incredible story. And Trisha, um, I love that God has raised up some great leaders uh, in the Indigenous community in Canada, and your voice even to uh, us this morning. We are many different cultures, many different generations. Uh, can you explain a little bit of the challenges that are facing Indigenous youth in Canada? Help us understand what are some of the challenges that are facing that even shaped uh, someone like Terrell earlier in life. Definitely. Well, um as an Indigenous youth, I like to think that I still am, um, and having worked especially with Live Different over the past couple of years and traveling to over 50 communities, speaking and working with thousands of youth, and, and just being around this type of work with my parents doing that as well, I definitely have a passion and a, and a real care for, for this topic, and a lot of the, the challenges that Indigenous youth face are often pretty heavy. Um, one of the biggest ones that uh, I see is um, Indigenous youth face a lot of suicide. And they're often um, ending their own lives because their current situation isn't, um, isn't healthy and, and, and how they're feeling and how they're coping isn't healthy. And um, I think if you ask, if you come across and you meet and you talk to any indigenous person, um, majority, I would say, know somebody who has um, passed away by suicide. And so it's a huge epidemic. Uh, in a lot of communities, they've declared um, a state of emergencies because they need more assistance um, dealing with the suicides. There's been um, hundreds even within a matter of a year in some communities and uh, young people even committing packs with each other to do that. And so it's a really not a taboo topic that we talk about at all because it's so, um, it, it's so common, unfortunately. Some of the other challenges that Indigenous youth face are, um, uh, I guess, destruction towards themselves, self-harm, um, lack of um, self-worth and, and not knowing their identity, where they come from, where they're supposed to fit in society and how they're supposed to be. And so when we're looking at these challenges, it's sometimes easy to try and help that certain thing. Um, but a lot of it comes from deeper. We're, we're all products of our environment. And so I've, 
if you take a look at the history of indigenous people, you can kind of see how we're set up to, to get to this point where we're facing so many challenges, often hearing more about those than the positive. Um, yeah, and when we get a chance to meet uh, positive role models that are helping make a difference in Canada. But, you know, when I was growing up in Canada and I'm studying Canadian history, and so, some of you wouldn't have had to, and I, uh, but one of the chapters in Canadian history that was pretty dark was uh, the residential schools. And this was a practice that happened for over 100 years. I'll let you fill in some of the details, but where uh, children were taken from their parents forcibly, put in homes, separated from them, and uh, I wonder some of the lingering effects of that uh, in terms of the shame you talk about that people feel and, and the brokenness there. Can you speak to some of the lingering effects of residential schools, even among Indigenous youth today? Absolutely. When you take a look at the history and, and the residential schools that a lot of people um, ended up going to, uh, you can kind of see why throwing money at people and at the problem isn't enough. And I think that's often a misconception that a lot of people have that that's, why aren't they doing better? Well, it's a lot deeper and it's a lot, um, there's a lot more to it than just that. And so for example, you're right, there's um, generations of young children were forcibly taken from their homes and made to go to these residential schools for over 150 years. And there wasn't a place where they were finding nurturing relationships and, and, and comfort from an, even an adult figure. They were there to have everything about them broken down and taken away from them. So anything from their language to how they look to how they feel about themselves. Um, they were in these places and abused um, to really try and break them down. And, um, and experiencing all of that and, and trying to come back to your home where your parents weren't parenting because you're in the residential school and the children are in a place where they're not receiving any love, more come out more ashamed and broken. Um, and so now we have them raising their own families and it's a, it's a cycle of negativity where they are not able to um, express that love that they didn't get and, and they don't know how and they often are in this cycle because they don't know how to cope, they don't know how to feel, don't know how to be and, and so it's definitely um, unfortunately like a negative cycle that I know a lot of young people are, are really passionate about trying to overcome and heal from and there's still lingering effects. Um, as you mentioned, our families are struggling. It's not that we don't value family. We definitely value our family, but it's just not being able to cope and not know how to deal with those things. It leads to intergenerational trauma, um, which a lot of youth are, you can see the symptoms that are coming out now. So, uh, I mean, we're privileged to come and help resource some of this work in Northern Canada on some of these reserves, but uh, Tricia, I know with you and Terrell and Ryan, I know how central your faith is and, and how um, a difference Jesus makes, but you're talking to a faith community here and we are people who pray. How can we be praying for Indigenous youth in Canada? How would you uh, best direct us to pray for this need? Well, 
First of all, I really thank you for having us and featuring us in your global focus. I think a huge step in the right direction is having these conversations and being open to hearing um, stories and different perspective. I know a tradition amongst Indigenous people is storytelling and being able to allow us to tell our stories and, and kind of walk hand in hand and beside us as we're, as we're growing forward is definitely um, a huge, it's going to make a huge impact, I believe, in, in the years to come. But a way that you can pray and that you can um, think about this is to is to pray for healing. I think that's the hugest um, thing that we can do right now is to heal and overcome a lot of those traumas and those hurt within our, our family. So our grandmas, our cookums, our grandpas, our cousins, aunties, uncles, our sisters and, and brothers and um, and even those who might not be in the home because um, there's a lot of dis displacement of Indigenous people throughout um, Canada. And I think praying for that healing is, is, is a huge number one, but also the leadership. And so leadership within the chiefs and the communities and um, Canadian government, a lot of the systems that are in place now are from a time when they were um, actively trying to oppress Indigenous people. And they're still happening right now that those systems are in place. And so... Um, and so for the leadership to make great decisions and, and, and to move forward, I think those are the top two things that we can be praying for. So friends, uh, I hope you're going to take this on your heart and you'll be praying for our Indigenous youth this week, but why don't we pause in this gathering? Let's pray that the power of Jesus will be at work in reserves right across Canada and cities right across Canada, healing and restoring. So let's pray. Let's gather together and pray. Well, Father, uh, thank you for Tyreel and, and Trisha and Ryan and the work they're doing. Thank you for other great leaders in Canada that are endeavoring to step into what can feel like a messy situation, but they're walking towards it and they're taking uh, hold of it, God, and trying to bring hope to emerging generations. And so, God, we agree with Trisha right now that you would heal families that you would heal the brokenness and the trauma that they've experienced uh, for well over 100 years, Lord, the difficulties. And I don't sit in this platform today understanding the complexity of it, but God, I'm glad you do. And we pray, God, that you would be at work healing hearts, giving hope, breathing a future into the indigenous youth right across Canada, God. May they be find faith in you. May they find a, a liberty and freedom in you, God. And God, we pray together for leadership, uh, the chiefs and all of the reserves and bands, and God, for those in uh, federal, municipal, and provincial governments, and anyone that might have jurisdiction in any area, God, may they want, endeavor to do what's best for the people that they serve. Even if that means setting aside archaic notions or archaic systems that no longer are helpful, but more hurtful than helpful. God, uh, may there be courageous leaders who do the right things for the right reasons to help people become healed up, whole, and healthy, and moving forward. We pray that would happen in our nation. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's put your hands together. Thank Tricia. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. Peter Dove is the Regional Director for the International Missions Department of the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada. Along with his wife Cavell, Peter is the co-founder of Imagine Thailand, a social engagement organization that links the university and marketplace to communities impacted by political and environmental dislocation in Thailand and Southeast Asia. Since 2012, Peter has served as the country director for the Debor Fellowship, an innovative Myanmar-only fellowship for mid-career leaders participating in the shaping of emergent Myanmar. 
Peter's particular passion is in capturing the potential of young leaders to create a new future for communities in need. Please welcome Peter Dove. Well, good morning, One Church. It's an honor and a privilege to be with you. Thank you, Tristan. Uh, Terrell as well for just your presentation this morning. Can I just say off script that I love this church? Uh, it feels like a little bit of heaven here in terms of just so diverse and so wonderful to see you all here. You don't really know me too much. I only get to be here once a year, so just a little bit about who I am. I'm a Vancouver boy who fell in love with a Newfoundland girl. And um, we got married in 1999, I believe. And um, we ended up... Can I get that right? Um, this isn't being televised, I hope. Anyways, um, we, uh, we ended up in Bangkok in 2002, and we've had three boys there. We began a ministry called Imagine Thailand, and uh, Imagine Thailand creates a bridge between uh, emerging leaders and needs within their own country. And about six years ago, we shifted next door to Yangon, Myanmar, which some of you may know as Rangoon, Burma. Uh, we've been in Asia for about 17 years now, so it's become home to us. My father was a Canadian veteran born in Saskatchewan. My mother survived uh, Nazi occupation and was a Dutch immigrant, and they taught me how to ask questions. And the question that prefaces this presentation is the question of why. Why are we involved in Asia? Why would we go? apart from the fact that there's a call of God and the Great Commission, apart from the fact that many of you actually have Asian roots, why are we involved in Asia? The question's not just about me, but it's also about you. Why are you involved in Asia? Because you are. You're engaged, you're invested, you're putting money, people, resources into Asia, so why do that? Well, I want to answer that question through some stories, and I want to begin first with Myanmar. That's where we are. Myanmar is a country of about 51 million people in a landmass the size of Manitoba. Has about 135 different people groups, over 600 different dialects. It's a very, very diverse country. Since about the Second World War, it's been mostly under military rule. It's a country that has known conflict. There are currently about three civil wars going on in the country. There was up to 14 at one time. One of those civil wars is in a state called Kachin. Now, Kachin is in the north of the country. Myanmar is a mostly majority Buddhist country, but Kachin is actually 70% Christian. It's a beautiful part of the country. There's tall mountains uh, bordering Tibet, the tallest peaks in Southeast Asia. Has great uh, teak forests and jade and mineral resources. It's rich in resource, but it's also a, an area in conflict largely over those resources. There's over 150,000 people who are trapped in internally displaced camps. There are children who have lost their parents, who've lost their homes and lost their opportunity for an education. And so the question here isn't just why, but also how. How do we demonstrate the redemptive love of Christ in this context? We're not welcome as foreigners to be there. How do we do that? And the answer in this case is through a person by the name of Wintu. I can't show you Wintu's picture, but Wintu is one of our graduates of a program with the DeBoer Fellowship, something I'm deeply invested into in Myanmar. And Wintu is um, he's a Christian man. He spent 20 years in the military. After that, 
He joined World Vision, and now he's with the United Nations. He forms a bridge. He's a mediator between uh, international relief organizations and the military. And I met with him a couple of uh, weekends ago for breakfast up in Kachin State, and he wanted me to say and wants you to know that he believes that he's called by God to be there. You can't be there, I can't be there, but he can be there. He feels called by God to be that bridge between these two warring parties, and he also believes that we helped prepare him to be there. That's not just me, that's you, because you've invested into that. Wintu is one of the reasons why we are in Myanmar, to serve people in need. Well, Doris is another person. Doris is a Christian lady but she's also an amazing baker. And with my wife and some other women, they've created the Yangon Bakehouse. It's a social enterprise, a training cafe for women. Now in Myanmar, one of the least developed countries in the world, 25% of the people only make a dollar a day or less. And most, and many of those are women. Women often have the most risk and they also have the most responsibility. And so my wife is very deeply passionate to help create opportunities for women to be trained, to have opportunities for life, and career or, or some form of livelihood to prepare for themselves and for their families. And Doris is one of those people as a Christian woman who's deeply invested. I can't do that. I can bake a bit. I can taste test much better. But Doris is clearly somebody who can actually do this. And she is one of the reasons why we are in Myanmar. Well, there are two stories of hundreds of stories of people that we're invested into and working with to make a difference. But more broadly, why are we involved in Asia? I want to tell some more stories, but I first want to say there's a couple, three compelling realities that really drive our purpose of being engaged in Asia. The first one would be population. When Jesus said to go into all the world, he clearly included the 60% of the world's population that is in this region alone. This graph says 2.5, but in fact, if you include China, it's over 4.4 billion people who are part of this region. That's a compelling reality. The second one is migration. Even though Asia is a very large population center, the actual growth rate is not remarkable. It's about 1%. But where the real growth is, is in the migration, the mobility of people to move to other parts within the region and to other cities. If you think of the largest cities in our world, they're mostly in Asia. You think about Tokyo, of over 35 million. Uh, we have Delhi, we have Manila, Kolkata. All these cities are over 20, 24, and 25 million people currently. By the end of the century, these cities will have 65 to 85 million people per city. We want to be a part of that. People are moving there because they want a new way of life. They're looking for education, for new ways of thinking. They want to earn money, and we want to be a part of that. Well, the third compelling reality is the religious one. A lot of people don't know this, but 62% of all Muslims live in Asia, not the Middle East. 99% of all Buddhists in the entire world live in Asia. 99% of all Hindus in our world live in Asia. And we want to be part of those, part of the team who declares the goodness of Christ to all people. Well, uh, some more stories. Why do ordinary Canadians like you, like me, pack up their bags and decide to make a new home in Asia? Well, here's some more reasons why. I think about Christina. 
Christina is a China, mainland Chinese national who, like many Chinese, are migrating to other parts of Asia, not just North America or Europe, for new opportunities. And she moved to Vanuatu in the South Pacific. And there she is going to open up a business, and she discovered a church that's been pastored by Dave and Julie Wood from Edmonton, Alberta. And uh, she began to observe other people. There's a lot of other Chinese people in this church, actually. Many people have been coming to faith, watching people hear the gospel, learning about the cross, watching people becoming baptized. And just a little while ago, she herself said, I too want to follow Jesus Christ. And there you have a picture of her being baptized. It's for people like Christina that we are in Asia. I think about Che. Che is a boy in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. He grew up in a poor village in the rural area, and as is common in Asia, you often need extra tutoring to advance your education, and the family didn't have money for that. And so he began to dance in bars and then began to uh, engage in the sex trade in his community, and that was how he was able to support his educational studies. Eventually, his mother pushed him out and said, you need to go to Penang Pen, find a different way of life, find a future. And uh, he encountered Ian and Tiffany Rowley. This couple is from Alberta and from Newfoundland, and uh, they have started the Global Student Center in Phnom Penh, which is adjacent to a major university there. And Che found them, found people who love God, and began to hear about Jesus Christ. And he himself began to express his desire to meet God, to see God, and to know God. And so here in this picture, you see him. He came to Christ in July, in August, he was baptized. Here, he's at the base of a waterfall, and there are 40 other Buddhist friends watching him become baptized and follow Jesus Christ. He's passionate and hungry to know and serve God. Che is another reason why you and I are in Asia. Well, when I think about why we're in Asia, I also think about Nat. Nat was a, like many students and many young people in Thailand, grew up in a Buddhist family, went to university in Chiang Mai, got to know some other people who were Christians who were teaching an English program and was very compelled, very interested. She graduated, like many internal migrants, moved to the large city, moved to Bangkok to get a job with, um, with PricewaterhouseCoopers, had a great opportunity, got to spend some time with other young adults who were trying to get involved in needs in their own city, something that we're very involved with, Imagine Thailand. And uh, she got to know uh, Zach and Megan Wiley, another young couple from Canada, from the West Coast. She could begin to observe and to talk and find out more about Jesus Christ. And here you see a picture of her just last month being baptized in water in a hotel pool. Now is another reason why you and I are involved in Asia. Well, my last little story is the story of Chelsea. Chelsea is a little girl, was a little girl, who was living on the streets uh, of Manila, a city of 24 million people. And uh, we have a good friend of ours, Marilyn Curtis from Springdale, Newfoundland, retired nurse single woman who just wants to be involved in the lives of other people. Not a professional missionary, not a Bible school student, just wants to be engaged. And one day she meets Chelsea. She's walking across uh, an overpass and there's Chelsea. Chelsea's one of four children. Her mother's name is Elizabeth and Elizabeth's last name means poor and insignificant. And as her mother writes about this meeting with uh, Marilyn, their first encounter, there's little Chelsea on the bridge, the overpass, begging. That's the only way they could survive, that and by selling flowers. 
And so Marilyn walks by and notices Chelsea, hardly dressed at all. And her mother, Christine, writes this note, writes this in her testimony, and I want to read it to you. She says this, One day, a routine begging day, I had my two eldest children on the streets while I hid under the overpass with my two youngest. I saw a white, very well-dressed lady walking towards my children, and my heart stopped. My eldest ran away in fear while my youngest was too sick, too tired, and too hungry to move. But in disbelief, I watched as this lady picked up my child, who was dirty, full of sores, half naked, and hungry. She held and hugged her, and I thought, this can't be true. This is not real, I must be dreaming. Is this an angel? I stayed in the shadows and cried. I was too embarrassed to come out. Marilyn didn't know there was a mother nearby, and so she walked little Chelsea back to her slum, and uh, her mother followed from a distance, and eventually they all kind of reconnected, and you're probably not surprised that the entire family came to Christ. There's another picture here, the next picture here tells you more of the story, because it wasn't just Chelsea, it was a whole community. Here's 27 people who were just recently baptized this past summer, 27 of a large, growing church that's just been birthed out of the fact that somebody decided to be engaged. Somebody decided to pay attention. That is why you and I are involved in Asia. Sometimes people wonder, well, that's great, nice stories, but really, does it make a difference? Is it not just a drop of food coloring in a bathtub of water? But actually, it's much more than that. There is incredible growth in Asia, and we're a part of that. One last little number to keep in mind as I leave. In 1970, there was 2.1 billion people in Asia, and now there's 4.4, growth of about 120% over 35 years. In 1970, there were 17 million Pentecostal Christians in Asia. Today, there's close to a quarter of a billion, a growth rate of over 1,000%. There is amazing things that are happening in Asia. And so I want to thank you for being in Asia, for being a part of what God is doing there, and I encourage you to stay in Asia. Thank you. Make sure you don't miss a message by subscribing to this podcast. All creative content and production for this podcast is provided by the One Church Creative Team.